0: This last Tuesday, the state of Florida became the 11th and the most populous state in the nation to mandate financial literacy courses for graduating high school students when the governor of the state of Florida signed into law State Bill 1054. SB 1054 was passed unanimously by both houses of legislators in Florida. And currently there are 26 states in the United States that have finance education bills pending within their governments, their state governments. So this is something that is on the minds of a lot of people. And while there are heated political debates in the United States on so many different things, and when it is rare to find something that is unanimously agreed upon politically, When it comes to this subject having to do with financial literacy, it seems that there is a unanimous consensus. A journalist writing on Florida's bill and the move across the nation to legislate financial literacy in grade school wrote on this topic that while coronavirus, the pandemic, upended financial education across the country, it has also highlighted the importance of teaching solid financial habits. I think that you would probably agree that there seems to be a need for many people in our country, especially those that are growing up and approaching adulthood, to learn sound, solid financial habits, especially when you consider that inflation is at a 40-year high. For many of you probably watching this right now, your gas bill increased by as much as 50% in the last six to eight weeks. I know that that is the reality in my household. So not only is inflation at a 40 year high, but consumer debt, that is basically credit card debt, student loan debt, all kinds of mortgage debt, consumer debt is at a record level again in 2022, just as it was in 2021. There is at this moment some $15.4 trillion in consumer debt. That means that for every one of the 330 citizens in the United States, 330 million citizens in the United States, for every single one of them, they owe $45,000 per citizen in consumer debt. And that doesn't take into account the national debt. The national debt in the United States of America, as of this last week, when I looked at the debt clock online, was at $30.3 trillion dollars. So if you add to the $45,000 per citizen in the United States of consumer debt, you add the national debt, it adds another $90,000 per citizen. So over $130,000 per citizen in debt, both national and consumer debt. So when you consider all of that, we probably need some sound financial literacy education in our nation. Now, what is taught in a financial literacy course? Well, here's some of the things. I was looking this last week after I read the article about what was passed there in State Bill 1054 in Florida. I wanted to see what exactly is taught in a financial literacy course. So here's some of the topics that they talk about in a financial literacy course. Understanding a balance sheet, so kind of looking at how much money you have in your net assets. Um, developing a budget, so planning how you're going to spend your money, principles of saving and principles of banking, owning versus renting, investing, investing in stocks, investing in bonds, diversification, risk and return, controlling debt, using credit wisely. Obviously, that's something that we at our national level, at our state levels, at our local levels and in our own homes, that's probably something we need to learn, controlling Debt and using credit wisely, and then the basics of how loans work. So, a number of different things there, and there may be some of you that are watching this today who might think that you could benefit from a high school financial literacy class. I actually do a class that we call Faith and Finances here at the church, which we will probably offer again sometime later this year, probably in just the late spring of this year. But I believe that a lot of these sound financial principles, like what you see that would be taught in a financial literacy class at a high school level, now mandated in the state of Florida, a lot of these financial principles, the wisdom of economics and finances, they actually find many of their roots in the scripture, or at least there are corollaries to what we find in the Bible as it relates to dealing with finances, dealing with economics and all of these sorts of things. If you were here with us last time, we talked about one of those sound issues of economics from a biblical perspective of economics, money and wealth, at least for those men and women of faith, those who are the children of God. So last week I shared with you, if you tuned in with us, I shared that as a child of God, my father in heaven, because I'm a child of God, he has a say in how I see my money and how I prioritize my spending. Now that's a, that's a challenging consideration for some people, especially if they're not a believer, especially if they would not consider themselves a child of God. But if you are a child of God, that is you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and by believing in him, he has given you the authority, if you will, to be called a child of God. If you're a child of God, then our father in heaven, he has a say in how I see my money and how I prioritize my spending. Now, following that point, Last time, we considered the biblical principle of the tithe, and I showed from the scriptures what the tithe is. What exactly is the tithe? It is the first 10th of all of the fruits of all of my labors, and we saw in our study last time that that belongs to the Lord, and it should be given back to him as an honorable worship or a worship honoring the Lord, a tithe given to him. Now, for some, that is not an easy principle to accept. For many, I would say, it is not an easy principle to apply. So it's one thing to accept that that is true, that the tithe, the first 10% of everything that I bring in belongs to the Lord. That's hard to accept, but to actually apply it, it can be very, very difficult. But we also saw in our study last time in the scriptures, in Deuteronomy, that God blesses those who truly honor him with their increase and with their abundance. Now, I'm not going to reteach that message. If you didn't catch the message last week, um, I would encourage you to go to our website, lifeinconnection.com and go to our podcast. You can find it on Spotify. You can find it on, you know, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or go to YouTube and just find Cross Connection Church on YouTube. You're already watching this on YouTube. So you can watch the message there. So I'm not going to reteach that message, but as we continue in our study of Deuteronomy today in Deuteronomy chapter 15, we are going to see that there are some additional principles here in this passage regarding money and possessions and wealth and how we think about finances and how we use these things that God has given to us. And not just money. When I talk about the things that have been given to me by God, I'm talking about my, my energy, my assets, and my time, or to say it another way, my time, my talents, and my treasure. So the Bible has a lot of things to say about how we manage our money, our possessions, and our wealth, and how we think about our finances as faithful followers of God. So Moses, as we continue into Deuteronomy chapter 15, he shifts from talking about giving of the tithe and he writes this. If you look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 1 today, we read this At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. Think about that for a moment. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. Now, some of you who are feeling the weight of debt, maybe it's student loan debt maybe it's credit card debt maybe it is a home loan with a variable interest rate and interest rates are climbing whatever it may be for some of you who are feeling the weight of debts that just kind of weigh you down every single month you are wishing that you had a release of your debts what we would call a sabbatical release of your debts And so at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. He continues in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse two. And Moses says there, and this is the form of the release. This is how you are to do it. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called the Lord's release. Now, some people really geek out on things like this the word that is translated a release or a release of debts here in this passage is the Hebrew word Shemitah. Now, there's a whole bunch of discussion in certain circles of Christianity in the last eight or nine years about the Shemitah. And the idea of the Shemitah is simply that every seventh year in Israel, there was to be a Sabbath year rest or a sabbatical year in which the Lord required a number of things, including, The the Shemitah, the release of debts. So every seven years there was to be this release of debts within the nation of Israel for the children of Israel. Notice the totality of this requirement in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Notice that Moses here in this passage, he says, every creditor and every creditor shall release all the debts that they have. Every single creditor is to release all of these things. Now, listen, if you think that it is a stretch of faith to give a tithe, a tenth of everything that you bring in every single year, so if you bring in a hundred thousand dollars a year and your income, then ten thousand of that is a tithe. If you think that's a stretch and that's a stretch of faith for you to give that tenth part to the Lord of all of your increase as we talked about in our message last time. Imagine the stretch that it is to release every debt of anything you've lent to someone and to set aside one year every seven years, a a Sabbath every seven years to be a rest for the Lord. So for the children of Israel, as you read through the books of Exodus, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, those are the primary places in the first five books of the Bible where we have the, the law, the Torah. So in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, we have this principle that for the children of Israel, every seventh year was to be a Sabbath rest. So they were farmers, they were herdsmen, and in the seventh year, they were not to farm their land. They were supposed to let the land lie fallow, and they were to take a Sabbath rest. The land was supposed to rest. And during that period of time, they were to release all debts. So again, as I said, if it's a stretch of faith to give God a tenth of everything that you make in, Imagine how big of a stretch of faith it is to be faithful to this, that you're going to take a a year off every seven years, which for some of you, you'd say, man, that sounds really good right about now. But you're going to take a year off every seventh years and you're going to release every debt that you may have during that period of time. It takes great faith to be faithful. I think that that's a really important thing to consider. It takes great faith to be faithful. The release of debts was not merely a release of anything that was owed to you, but it was also a release of any servant. That is any slave. The Bible does talk about slavery, maybe not in the same context or the same way that we think of slavery, because a lot of times we think of slavery in the sense of how it was in Europe and in the early Americas uh, and how individuals were taken, you know, Apart from their will, they were taken into slavery and, and transported from one continent to another. That's, that's way, the way that we think about slavery. Biblical slavery may not be identical to that. It's still got some major issues. But there was to be, every seventh year, a release of debts, but there also was to be a release of any slave that was serving you for those previous six years. And this is addressed in the third section of Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 15, so if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 15, there's four sections in this passage. In the third section, beginning at verse 12 through verse 18, it talks about this release of slaves, but we'll get into that at another time. But here in this passage, Moses continues. He says there in verse 1 that every seven years you shall grant a release and that every single creditor is to release all of their debts every seventh year. And then Moses continues and he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 3, he writes this, Of a foreigner or a stranger in your midst, you may require the payment of the debts, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed to you by your brother. Now, I do think it is worth noting as we look at this passage here in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 1, 2, and 3, where we talk about this release of debts, it is worth noting that there are different views among scholars and commentators about this passage. Some scholars, some commentators believe that the Sabbath release, this idea of the releasing of debts, the Shemitah, in the seventh year, that it was a release of only the interest payments during that year. So imagine you had a loan that someone had given to you, and now you're paying them not only the principal of the loan, but you're paying the interest of the loan. So there are some people who believe that that effectively that Sabbath year, every seventh year, the Shemitah was basically like a holiday, if you will, from the interest or maybe a holiday from just the payment. So it's not saying that you're not going to pay back the loan at all, but it's saying that in the seventh year, you're either not paying the interest or you're not paying the principal, something like that. So there there is some discussion on what is happening in this passage. And It could be a number of different things. It could be that Moses is saying that you're to release every debt. So let's say you had a loan. Someone had loaned to you, just imagine $10,000. And in the seventh year, let's say you owe 5,000 of it. You paid half of it back so far, but in the seventh year, you still owe 5,000. And so now it's gonna be completely released and it's forgiven, the loan is forgiven. For some of you, that sounds really good. And you're thinking, boy, we should implement that here for maybe your student loan. Uh, There's some people that are actually kind of pushing for that. So that's kind of an interesting consideration. So so some people think it's a complete remission of debt, that the the loan is forgiven. Other people believe that it was just a holiday, if you will, from the interest. So during that year, you don't have to pay the interest. Let's say you're paying 5% annually. You don't have to pay that that 5% every seventh year. And then there are some people who think that it was a holiday from the principal and the interest, but you still owed the payment. And then after that year, then you'd pick that up. Now, what's kind of fascinating is that I know some people during COVID who they were having a hard time because work slowed down to a point where they could not pay their bills, where their mortgage company gave them kind of a Sabbath year of rest from their mortgage payments, where they not only didn't have to pay the the interest, but they didn't have to pay the principal. And That was a big challenging discussion in our nation because how do you handle that if you're the landlord of someone and they're now not making payments on that whole situation? So big discussions here. So there are different views about how we should interpret this passage. So it may be true. It might be a full forgiveness of the total loan. It could be just a holiday from the interest. It could be a holiday from the principal and the interest, and then you come back in the eighth year and you start paying it again. So many different ins and outs. Any one of those things might be true. And I don't believe that you can necessarily be dogmatic on this subject, but my aim when looking at these passages, as I have been sharing with you over the last several weeks as we're going through the book of Deuteronomy and looking at these passages in the law, in the Torah, my aim when looking at these passages and then making application to our day is to look into this passage and look for the principle or the spirit of the law over the clear letter of the law. So for this, I want to highlight something written by uh, a commentator by the name of Warren Wiersbe. He passed away a number of years ago, but Warren Wiersbe to kind of highlight what is the principle that is being taught here in this passage. Warren Wiersbe writes this in his commentary on the book of Deuteronomy. He says, the Sabbath year was part of God's wise plan to balance the economic scales in the nation of Israel so that the rich could not exploit the poor or the poor could not take advantage of the rich. So if I was gonna kind of boil it down, what are we seeing here in this passage on this forgiving of debts or forgiving of interest or giving a holiday from the interest and in principle, whatever it may be, what is the, the core principle that we should take away from this section in Deuteronomy chapter 15, the opening section? I would say it like this, for the child of God, if you are a child of God, you have put your trust in Jesus Christ. For the child of God, economic exploitation is always wrong and will result in a curse. Let me, let me say that again, because I think this is really, really important. And, and I would say that there's probably some people who don't go to church, never have studied the Bible, would probably never even open the book of Deuteronomy. He would totally agree with this statement. For the child of God, economic exploitation is always wrong and will result in a curse. It's a pretty simple and powerful statement. So, and let me just say that the curse that I'm mentioning there, that economic exploitation will lead to a curse, the curse that results from the sin of exploitation as it relates to economic exploitation is often just the failure or the collapse of society. So I would say it like this, society breaks down under the weight of economic exploitation. And we have seen that. I mean, it is so clearly witnessed in our society. Society breaks down under the weight of economic exploitation and uh, what what you could actually term as usury. And this exploitation, it goes both ways it's not just the rich exploiting the poor because if i if I mention economic exploitation, a lot of people are going to imagine rich people taking advantage of poor people, and that that definitely is economic exploitation, but it also could be the inverse poor people taking advantage of rich people and like I said, we have seen this kind of economic exploitation in our own nation in recent history. You do not have to look very far back into recent American history to see issues of economic exploitation. And I would suggest to you that one example of economic exploitation in our culture within the last 25 years is all that happened as the result of the subprime lending in the early 2000s and then the economic collapse that followed in 2008. So there were people who didn't have a lot of money and they didn't have good credit history and they were able to take advantage of the system to get loans that they probably shouldn't have. So there's an economic exploitation there, but there were people who were very, very wealthy who were also taking advantage of these people to get their assets ultimately. So there's an economic exploitation that was going both ways. And as I said, for the child of God, economic exploitation is always wrong and it will result in a curse. And that curse sometimes it is the collapse of society. So economic exploitation, whether it is the rich against the poor or the poor against the rich, It's always wrong and it is going to bring about bad results. And I think that this is an important principle that we need to recognize as a biblical truth. And as I said, there are many people who you and I interact with on a regular basis, at school, at work, uh, within your family, in your neighborhood, who would agree with this concept that economic exploitation is always wrong and it's going to cause the breakdown of society. Even people who do not go to church are probably going to agree with that statement. But listen, the major expectation of modern, enlightened, progressive, Western liberal democracies, that's the United States of America, that's Canada to the north, that's Western Europe, that's Australia, that's New Zealand. So modern, enlightened, progressive, Western liberal democracies, the mindset of a lot of people who don't go to church, who are not Bible readers, but live in this culture, the the major expectation of a lot of the people in our culture is they look forward to a utopian end in which there is, uh, this is the way that it would be said, an equitable society in which the stratification you know, kind of like the hierarchy with the rich at the top and the poor down at the bottom. An equitable society is what they desire in which the stratification is leveled. And we have not only equal opportunity, but we have equal outcomes so that everybody basically has everything that they need or want. In other words, and maybe you've seen this kind of going around in our culture in the last year or so or two years, many of your friends or family members envision a future in which you will own nothing and you will be happy. They see an end in which college is free, healthcare is free, robots, they do most of the heavy lifting. You have one-click, same-day delivery, and you don't have to pay for it because it's a service that is provided to you by some redistributive process of universal basic income. That is the mindset. That's, that's the vision that some people have in our culture. Now, listen, economic exploitation is always wrong. That's true. That's something I believe that you can prove from the Bible, but all that other stuff about universal basic income and free college and healthcare as a human right, that's not exactly what I'm talking about when I say that economic exploitation is always wrong. All of those things, may or may not be the answer to this question of economic exploitation. The idea that there will be equal outcomes and that there will be no such thing as the rich and the poor, like a stratification in society, the idea that those things will be completely done away with. And we've heard different monetary theories and economic ideas and uh, governing ideas for society for a very long time that talk about this idea of getting rid of rich and getting rid of poor and equalizing society. The idea that we will be able to equalize society and in that way. Um, that's not what this text is getting at when we're talking about economic exploitation being wrong. That's not exactly what the Bible is teaching. Although there will be some people who try to use the Bible to say that that's what we ought to be striving for within culture. In fact, we are going to see later in this very text that um, the idea that there will be no rich and no poor, it, it just doesn't fit with reality. The Bible poses a different picture and says the the poor will never cease from the land. In Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, we're going to see that. And Jesus echoes this exact idea in the gospels of Matthew and Mark and John in the New Testament. He says, the poor you will have with you always. So what this means is that the Bible speaks truth. That, That is that which accords with reality. And the reality is as much as some people do not like it, there will be those who are rich and there will be those who are poor. Like it or not, there are riches and there is poverty and they are global realities and God's people are expected to deal properly within this context. So, so let me just state this emphatically again. For the child of God, economic exploitation is always wrong and it will result in a curse or the failure of society. And let me suggest before we move on to the important grounding statement in this passage. When there are huge gaps between the have-nots and the have-lots, or maybe I should say the have-nots and the have-lots, when there is a huge gap between those who have nothing and those who have a lot within society, society is in danger of collapse, which is a major problem because we see that there is an increasing wealth gap in Western societies in a huge way. And when there is an increasing wealth gap in this way, you can expect that there are going to be a destabilizing effects within the culture. We're watching that take place right now. So these truths are really, really important for our culture right now, for such a time as this. But if we obey the principle of the scriptures, if we obey the principle of the law, there is a blessing. So Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 1, it begins by saying, "At the end." of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts. And then notice what Moses says in verse four, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse four, Moses says this in that passage, for the Lord will greatly bless you in the land. Again, verse one, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release of debts for the Lord will greatly bless you in the land, which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care all these commandments which I command you today for the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. These verses, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses four through six, these are so important that they have the key grounding statements here in this passage. So these are really important. Deuteronomy 15 verse 1 teaches or it emphasizes what was previously taught in Exodus and Leviticus that usury in lending, it is wrong. Usury in lending or economic exploitation, it is out of bounds as God sees it. And if I observe God's teaching on this and I carefully observe his precepts, I obey his commands, then if I obey... Those that honor God and how they handle their finances will experience God's abundance and blessing. And I believe that this is true nationally for a nation. And Moses was speaking this to the people who made up the nation of Israel. This is true for the nation, but this is also true for individuals. Now, this does beg the question, if this is true, those that honor God and how they handle their finances will experience God's abundance and blessing. If that is true, it begs the question, how should I honor God in my finances? And the answer to that question, I would say, actually requires a whole class. And I actually do a class called Faith and Finances. And um, we will probably be doing that Faith and Finances class again some point this year, maybe within the next six or eight weeks. So we'll we'll let you know when we're going to be doing that class. But The faith and finances class is really important. It gives the whole idea of what the Bible has to say about how we should govern our finances, practical principles from the scripture and wisdom that we can kind of meld together or see the crossover between these things. But I will give some very brief insights or considerations at the end of this message today on answering that question. How should I honor God in my finances? But I, I want you to recognize that this point is coming directly from the scriptures. The point that I just read a moment ago, those that honor God and how they handle their finances will experience God's abundance and blessing. This is coming directly out of the scriptures. And notice in Deuteronomy 15 verses four through six, what I'm calling the grounding statements or the grounding words, you can identify it with the words for in this text. Deuteronomy 15 verse one gives us the command, you shall have a release of debts. You shall grant a release of debts every single Shemitah, every seventh year, you need to release these debts. And then verses four and six give us the grounding result. If you do this, or if you're faithful in this and you obey God in this, then here's the grounding statement. For the Lord will greatly bless you in the land, verse four. Verse six, for the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you. And when we read the words at the end of verse six, that you will lend and not borrow, that means that there will be an abundance. There will be no lack. So if you obey God in this and you do not commit usury of those who are within the nation and you don't take advantage of them, if there is no economic exploitation, then there will be an abundance. There will be no lack. Now, it doesn't mean that there won't be rich people or poor people. It doesn't mean that society will be, you know, the stratification will be released and everything will be equal. That's not what it's saying because verse 11 of Deuteronomy chapter 15 says, the poor will never cease from the land. There will be poor always, at least until the Lord comes and he rules and reigns in righteousness. Because we live in a broken, fallen world, there will always be the reality that there are some people who don't have much and there will be some people who have much. And because the poor will never cease from the land, we have the next important thing, the next important financial economic principle for God's people in the next verses. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor Brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. I'm not even sure I can fully express just how important this is. And what I want you to notice in this passage is that God distinguishes between the tithe, which we considered last week, where you shall give a tenth part of everything that you've brought in annually to the Lord. He distinguishes between the tithe and generous giving to those who are poor. So there is a difference between the tithe to the Lord and being generous to the poor. Also, I think that it is worth considering whether or not lending and borrowing would be necessary if God's people were to observe this command. Would it really be necessary for there be to be lending and borrowing if God's people fully followed these things? and in another thing additionally notice the focus in this passage is on the heart and the hand this is really really important the hearts and hands of the people of god should remain open to those who are in need this is so key the hearts and the hands of the people of god should remain open to those who are in need and There there are so many important keys in these verses, in verses seven and eight of of Deuteronomy chapter 15. The first important key that I I think you should take notice of here in this passage is is that a, a hard heart and a closed fist are not representative of God. Let me say that again, a hard heart and a closed fist do not represent God well. Our God is a giving and loving father the most famous verse in all of the scriptures makes this absolutely clear. In John chapter three, verse 16, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the first important key is that we should not have a hard heart and a, a closed fist because those do not represent the Lord well. Second important key in this passage, notice that Moses says, you shall open your hand willingly. Open your hand willingly. What is commanded here is to be one who has a willing heart. If you can't do this willingly, then don't do it. But if you can't do this willingly, you should consider whether or not your heart is right and your unwillingness is honoring to God because God loves a cheerful giver, and God himself is a loving and cheerful giver. So if God loves a cheerful giver, and he is a loving and cheerful giver, and you are unwilling to be giving to other people, you really have to question whether or not you're honoring God with your finances, with your wealth. But understand, if you don't do this willingly, not only does it reveal something about your heart, but your unwillingness carries with it a result which We will consider shortly is not a good thing. So, the unwillingness to give to those who are in need is not not good at all. So, the first important thing to consider in this passage is that a, a hard heart and a closed fist is not representative of God. Second important thing is that we need to do this willingly. We need to be willing and have an open heart, be willing to give to those who are in need. Third important key in this passage, Moses says, you shall open your hand and willingly lend him sufficient for his need. In this passage, both giving and lending are mentioned. So sometimes you're going to give charitably to someone, something that they need. Sometimes you're going to lend to someone something that they need. Now, what's the difference between giving and lending? Well, giving, there's no strings attached. There's no repayment necessary. Lending, I'm giving to someone they're borrowing and there's an expectation that they're either going to give that back or repay whatever it is I've lent to them. In this passage, both giving charitably and lending are are both mentioned. And, And I would suggest that there is a difference between the two of them. Sometimes your giving is a charitable blessing and other times it is given as a loan. You're letting someone borrow something. And circumstances and situations they change. And in fact, the the Sabbath year, the Shemitah year, so every seventh year, there's a release of debts. And so that would mean that sometimes, depending upon the circumstances, depending on the situation, the time, then what you are giving to a person, it's going to be a gift and it's not going to be a loan because the Shemitah, the the release of debts year is coming. So it's important to go into it knowing that and that this thing that you're giving, it's not going to be repaid. It's going to be immediately released because it's the release of debts that's coming up. So whether it is a charitable gift or a loan with an anticipated repayment, you should be ready to give. This is what the passage teaches. You should be ready to give or to lend to someone among your brothers who is in need. And the last word need in this passage is really important, leads us to a fourth and final key for thinking about here in this passage. Moses repeats that word need twice. He says, you shall open your hand and willingly lend sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Those that are poor in society, and we see there's a lot of poor people in this society and poor people throughout the world. Those that are poor in society, and there will always be the poor. They may want what those who are more wealthy than them have. But those that have more should seek to lend or give sufficient to meet a person's needs. So sometimes we don't, we don't give to someone everything that they want, but we do give for what they need. And so continuing on, Moses says this, beware, verse 9, Deuteronomy chapter 15, beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying the seventh year, the year of release, is at hand and your eye be evil against your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. Really, it's not very likely that I need to explain very much of what's going on in this verse. I'm not sure that it could be much clearer. Nevertheless, this, this is, to me, pretty striking. It is a wicked heart. Note this. It is a wicked heart and an evil eye that thinks to withhold from someone the aid that they need. So if someone is in need and you can see their need and Proverbs chapter 3, I believe about verse 9 says, it's in the power of your hand to to give it to them. If you see someone in your need and it's in the power of your hand to give it to them and you withhold that from you, that is a, a hard and evil heart and an evil eye, a wicked heart and an evil eye. Not a good thing, which means you can be very religious in your ritualistic practice. You can go to church, you can give a tithe. You can serve at a church. You can read your Bible. You can do all these kind of religious ritualistic things. And yet at the same time, be unrighteous in how you handle your wealth. So this is really important that we take note of what's being said here. A a wicked heart and an evil eye is, is not a good thing. And that is those who withhold what aid from those who are in need? Jesus actually talks about this in the New Testament in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, where he tells a story which is a very famous story. Um, we, we refer to the story as the, the Good Samaritan story. And so Jesus tells the story there um, about a man in need after he has been beaten and he's been stripped by thieves. Now, Jesus told this story in response to a religious lawyer. Uh, probably a scribe, so a very religious person who wanted to justify himself. And so he was asking Jesus to explain who his neighbor was because Jesus told him to love his neighbor. And so he says, well, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus tells this story about a man who fell among thieves and as he's left for dead, stripped naked, beaten up on the side of the road, a priest walks by and just passes by, doesn't help him. And a Levite who was the priestly tribe among the children of Israel, he walks by and he passes by doesn 't help this guy, and then finally, a despised Samaritan. The Samaritans were a minority people group who lived um, in and amongst the nation of Israel between the, the Sea of Galilee in the north and the, the nation of, or the city of Jerusalem in the South. The Samaritans were a hated, despised people among the people of Israel. but the Samaritan comes along when the, when the priest and the Levite, the very religious people, when they didn't help, the Samaritan came and he provided all that was needed and more really to help the man in need. And the final word that Jesus gives on this, he asks the man who he was talking to, so which of these do you suppose was a neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? And the man said, I suppose the guy who showed mercy and Jesus said, go and do likewise. So, so here's the thing, we can be very religious and ritualistic in our religiousness, in our religion, and withhold what is needed for those who have need. And if we do that, we are not fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law in any way. So we need to make sure that we do not have a wicked heart and an evil eye in withholding aid from those who are in need, like the priest and the Levite in the Good Samaritan story. The hearts and hands of the people of God should remain open to aid those who are in need because it is a wicked heart and an evil eye that thinks to withhold from those who are in need. And of course, you should expect in this passage that there is a grounding statement, or what I would say a compelling reason to follow God's command. Look at what we read in in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 10. You shall surely give to him, the person who is in need, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, so you should do so willingly, because for this thing, the Lord, your God will bless you in all of your works and in all to which you put your hand for the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore, I command you saying you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and your needy in the land. Well, let me ask you a very rhetorical question. Do you want God to bless you in all the work, which you put your hand to? I can't imagine that anyone their right mind would answer no to that question. Of course, we all want God to bless us and all the works which we put our hand to. Let me jump to Moses's closing summation in the book of Deuteronomy and, and look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is kind of like the closing statement of the entire book. Moses says this in Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 1. Now it shall come to pass If you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God, blessed you shall be in the city, blessed you shall be in the country, blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of the ground, the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, and the offsprings of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your storehouses and in all to which you set your hand. And he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Note this well. This is such an important point. God will command a blessing to those that do not withhold their goods to bless those in need. Let me say it again. God will command a blessing to those that do not withhold their goods to bless those in need. You know, it is fascinating to me that we Christians, under the influence of the early Christian ascetics and the monastics and the Christian Puritans, we have kind of inherited and aversion to desire, especially desire for pleasure and blessing. And yet, routinely in the scriptures, God appeals to our desire as a way to urge our obedience. As I, I said, it, cited in my message last time, Jesus in the gospel of Luke, he writes, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, he will put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured Back to you. So in that passage, Jesus is basically teaching exactly what I just said in that point. God will command a blessing to those that do not withhold their goods to bless those in need. So as you bless other people in giving to the things that they have need of, God will return to you a blessing. Give and it will be given to you. Press down, overflowing is what Jesus teaches in that passage. Now, that truth, as I shared in my message last time, that has been used or misused, I would say, by some in the prosperity gospel and, you know, in and through American ministries today and, in a very bad way. But it doesn't negate the truth of that, that God will bless us as we bless others. There's a blessing in obedience. But, but with that, uh, I'm going to pivot just a little bit. Earlier, I said that those that honor God and how they handle their finances will experience God's abundance and his blessing. And I also said that such a point begs the question, well, then how should I honor God in my fa- finances? And of course, I said that we have a class that we call faith and finances that we give here at the church from time to time, and we'll we'll teach it again in the future. And I'll share about that at another point. But I, I want to share some of the key, kind of just briefly, share some of the key points that we go over in the faith and finances class for your consideration. The first essential thing that, that I want you to think about in, in thinking about how you should take care of your faith and finances first, it is essential that the child of God, if you are a follower of God, that the child of God recognizes that they are a manager and not the owner of all that they have in their life. The Bible says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. God is the owner of all things. Additionally, the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says that I am not my own, I've been bought with a price and I therefore belong to God and I ought to glorify God with my life and with my body. So the Bible makes very, very clear, Old Testament and New Testament, everything belongs to God including the entirety of my life, my energy, my assets, my time, my time, my talents, my treasure. It all belongs to God. Second thing, once I understand that everything belongs to God, then I need to begin to understand that I am a steward and not an owner of all that I have. And I need to understand that as a steward, not the owner of everything that I have, I will be held accountable for how I manage those things that I possess. I believe that the scriptures teach that I will give an account to God for how I have utilized my time, my talent, and my treasure. So first thing, I need to recognize that everything I have belongs to God. I'm a steward of those things. Second thing, as a steward, I will be held accountable for how I use my time, my talents, my treasure. Third, because I am a steward, accountable to God for how I manage all that he has given to me, I should keep a good accounting of what I have been given. I need to keep a good accounting of my time, my talents, and my treasure. And not only do I need to keep a good accounting of all of those things, and I also need to keep a good accounting of how they are being utilized. This means, or at least wisdom would suggest, that I should keep a good accounting of my finances, which would require a budget. Now, some people have a really hard time with the idea of a budget, but that's what we see when we just take the principles of Scripture. What principles? I'm not the owner of all the things that I have, my time, my talents, my treasure. God is the owner, I'm a steward. I will be held accountable for how I use those things that he has given to me. I will give an answer to him. Therefore, I should keep a good accounting of how I have taken care of all those things that he's given to me. And so it might require, as it relates to finances, a budget. And from what we have considered previously about tithing in our message last time, both the first fruits and charity should be a part of that budget. Now, there are a lot of things to consider where the principles of scripture and the wisdom around finances, where they intersect. But those teachings are for another day. And if the teaching on that topic is something that you feel would be helpful for you, then here's what I'd like you to do. If you'd be interested in the faith and finances class, which we're gonna hold here at the church and probably put up on the internet on video at some point in time, If you would be interested in our faith and finances class, completely free, We're not going to charge for this. Send a text message with just the words faith and finances to the phone number on the screen, 760-814-1223. So if you send a text message to 760-814-1223 with the words faith and finances, that will just let us know that you are interested and we will have your phone number and we can follow back up with you to let you know when we're going to be doing that class. But It is probably necessary to just, as we're finishing up today, I know I've given a lot of things to think about in this passage in Deuteronomy 15. I just want to kind of summarize again or just review some of the things that we've seen in this passage. For the child of God, economic exploitation is always wrong and it will result in a curse. And in some respects, I think that we are watching the results of that curse right now in our culture just play out. You don't have to look very far to see it. You see that because of our, the horrible ways that we are handling uh, finances at a national level, at a local level, and even within our own homes, we are experiencing the the resulting curse that comes when we, we exploit riches and we exploit one another with riches. So We're watching those things play out. So for the child of God, economic exploitation is always wrong and will result in the failure of society. It will result in a curse. Secondly, those that honor God and how they handle their finances will experience God's abundance and his blessing. I have experienced this personally, and I have witnessed it in the lives of others who have taken God seriously as it relates to his teaching on finances. I believe, and I have experienced that If you honor God with your first fruits, and if you see yourself rightly as a manager of all the things that you have, not the owner of those things, but the manager of those things, and you seek to use those things according to the principles of scripture, God will bless you in a wonderful way. Third thing we've seen today, the hearts and hands of the people of God should remain open to those who are in need. This one is important, but it also requires significant discernment and prayer. You see just giving money to every person that you see on the street that that seems to be poor is not actually helping those who are in need it might actually be hurting those people i'm sure you've seen some of the images that are coming out of especially san francisco but also out of uh, los angeles we clearly here in california have a significant problem with homelessness and we just keep throwing a whole bunch of money at the situation and I saw some stuff came out of San Francisco recently where a number of people who are homeless on the streets, they are being given free phones and, you know, nearly a $1,000 a month in just free money. And, you know, then we've lessened the laws and theft. And so people just go into stores and just take whatever they want. If you just give money to a person who's in that situation on the street, it's highly unlikely that you are actually helping that person and you're probably actually hurting them. So your heart should be open and your hand should be ready to give, but you should use wisdom and discernment from the Lord as to how you do that. And that's what we seek to do here at the church. And you should do that as well. And if you lack wisdom in this, if you don't have the best wisdom in this, then seek the help, the guidance of other believers who have better wisdom than you. And the book of James says, pray and ask God to give you wisdom. So, The heart and hands of the people of God should remain open to those in need. Fourth thing we saw in this passage today, God will command a blessing to those that do not withhold their goods to bless those in need. I am convinced that God blesses us to be a blessing. And as we hold the blessings of God with an open hand, as we hold the blessings of God with an open hand, I have found that he is pleased to give us more so that we can be a conduit of further blessing through which he can give further blessing to other people. God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, when he called Abraham, he said, I will bless you and you shall be a blessing. The children of Israel, I I read that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 28, where it says you're going to be blessed when you go out, you're going to be blessed when you come in, you're going to be blessed in your bread bowl, you're going to be blessed in your flocks, you're going to be blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed. Why would God bless the children of Israel? What what was the purpose of all, all that? God made it very clear, you are blessed to be a blessing. So if you are blessed today, I am very blessed. I am blessed to be a blessing. And I should maintain an open hand and be ready and willing to give to those who are in need to bless them. And and I would say, God, we need help because it's so easy for us to constrict and hold on to these things and think that they're mine, like the Scrooge character and just be a miser. But God says, no, I want you to have an open hand. I have blessed you to be a blessing. And as you are willing to bless others, God will bless you with more to be able to be a blessing to others. I have seen that in my own life. I've seen that in the lives of many people here at Cross Connection Church. And I know that it is biblically true and I've seen it practically play out in many people's lives. So Father God, I pray that you would help us to think through this passage and to consider how we ought to use the wealth that you've given to us. And it's not just wealth and money. It's not just wealth in the things that we possess but it's the wealth of our time. It's the wealth of our our energy. It's the wealth of our talents. It's the wealth of all the things that you've given to us. We will give an account for how we have used those things. And so I pray that you'd help us to use those things in a way that honors and glorifies you. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.